Hey gang, it's Harold. I'm podcasting to you from the bunker. In the interest of distracting myself and my gaming friends, I'm reaching out to some interesting people to ask them what they're doing game-wise. With such a big time dividend, I want to hear what they're playing, designing, or thinking about. No CNN, no CNBC, just games. My production obsession will have to be put on hold as I'm most interested in communicating with you rapidly and with some interesting content. This podcast documents a discussion I had with game designer and American Revolution savant Mark Miklos. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, I start with a few ground rules. Mm -hmm. So the first is no medical discussions. The second is no political discussions. And the third is no discussions of financial markets. Very good. (laughs) So if if you're good with that. (laughs) Of course. You know, my, my intention, of course, is to just create some content that allows people to put together the, uh, the chaos of the day and, um, to put that aside and to think a little bit about games. And, um, you know, I, I've never interviewed you in my podcast, but I've always wanted to. And we've talked a couple of times when Liberty or Death was in development. And I appreciate your input on that. But um, I've admired your games for so long. And, and lo- being a lover of the American Revolution, I've, uh, I've enjoyed them so much. And, uh, you know, I thought a good place to start might be where did you start and what were you thinking when you decided to, to embark on this uh, path of what now is, boy, is it seven games? So volume nine just went to the printer uh, within the last, Oh, I don't know, three weeks, I guess. Um, It's going to be nine volumes representing 12 distinct battles. And It's 22 years since Saratoga was published. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine that? I mean, it's been a blessing. I, I, no one could have imagined that kind of staying power, that kind of popularity. Uh, Folks are rediscovering it. Uh, New people are coming on board all the time. And, and the, the veteran cadre players keep coming back for more and, and of course, if you know the series, you know I I I I sort of push the envelope a little bit. Sure, there's Saratoga, Brandywine, Germantown, Monmouth, the things that people would would recognize, that the you know, the titles that people would recognize, even if they're just casual students of, of the revolution. But then I push the envelope, you know. I, I there's two siege games in there, Savannah and Pensacola. Pensacola, you know. What there was an there was a battle in, of the American Revolution outside the thirteen colonies. Yeah, there was and and oh by the way, the only Americans present were two regiments of Tory or Loyalist infantry fighting for the um, for the British. Uh, there was a uh, the, the uh, you know the the infamous and I'll get to you. You did ask me a direct question. Oh, you're Euro. doing great. Keep going. We'll get to it. <laughs> but uh, but 
there, you know, the, the, the infamous prison hulks in New York Harbor where so many perished in, in horrible conditions, those, those captives were, were often asked if they would serve under arms for the king. And most of the time, uh, the answer was no. But in this particular case, when the American POWs learned that they would not be fighting other Americans, but instead would be fighting the Spanish, they took the opportunity to say yes, many of them did, and a regiment was formed, uh, which was en route uh, to Florida to fight uh, to fight with the British, and and that's represented in the game, um, as it happens historically. The um, the the vessel carrying those troops was uh, was met. At, at sea by a, a, a packet, you know, a message ship. And, uh, and they were told that the, that the fighting in Florida was over. And so they went on to uh, the Caribbean where they served garrison duty for the British in the Caribbean. Uh, but, uh, but, but they might not have bumped into that packet. So there's a, there's a random mechanism in the game that, may or may not allow those POWs to arrive um, in, in support of the British. But I mean, that, that was, you know, people scratched their heads and they said, my God, Pensacola, really? There was, there was fighting in Florida in the American Revolution. And then of course, uh, our, our dear friend Volko was very uh, instrumental in encouraging me to do Newtown, which was the only pitched battle between an army of Native American forces, Iroquois, um, against elements of the Continental Army. That we're not talking about a mere raid or a skirmish or a frontier action. We're talking about a legitimate army made up of Iroquois. There were a handful of uh, non-Native American units there. Butler's Rangers were there. That's a loyalist unit, as you know. Um, a platoon of the Eighth Foot was there, having come from Niagara. Um, there was some Mohawk Valley militia, Tory militia there. But it was primarily um, Indian Army, if you will. And, uh, you know, that... That one was probably six, if not eight years in design because I had to create an asymmetrical model for the Indian player. But where, so I pushed the envelope, you know, with a lot of these things, including volume nine now, which is Rhode Island. However, there's a B-side game. It's the hypothetical Battle of Newport. And I, I really hope we can talk about this because that one um, is very exciting. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But let me back up, Harold, and answer your question. Um, I guess I had been in the hobby about 25 years, approximately. And this was around 1995, 96. And yeah, when you do anything that long, you you start thinking well maybe i can maybe i can try my hand at designing one of these games you know maybe uh, i had created a house rule here and there along the way 
in, in other games and thought, yeah, maybe I can, maybe I can do this. So then the $64,000 question is, well, if you want to design a game and you've never done it before, you know, what, where in the world do you, do you start? You know, what, what are you going to, what game, what subject matter will you do? And I asked myself, does the world really need another Gettysburg game? Does the world really need another Waterloo game? Does the world really need another Battle of the Bulge game? You know, if I tried any of those things, any of those genre, I'd be a minnow in the ocean. And who in the world would, why in the world would anybody gamble on an unknown designer uh, in, in, in a field that's saturated with great, talented designers already. And I said, you know, you know what's underrepresented in the hobby? The American Revolution is underrepresented. This was, again, around 1995, 96. Okay, the American Revolution is underrepresented. Maybe that then is a legitimate place to start. If I'm going to do an American Revolution game, what, what game should I do? Well, any historian worth his salt or her salt will tell you that the Battle of Saratoga is rightly one of the 10 or 12 most significant battles in world history because that, that victory, as you know, triggered French intervention. And without French intervention, we wouldn't have won the rebellion. And so Saratoga becomes really critical, right, in the story. And it just so happens that I had been on a trip to New England with my fiance at the time, who's now my wife of 29 years. <laughs> 29 years, uh, actually, this coming May. And... Uh, we were uh, we were on a road trip. She's from the South. She had never been to New England before. I was born in Connecticut, so we uh, we went up there in the fall of the year, and we zipped around the different New England states. And part of our trip was the Saratoga battlefield, and Fort Ticonderoga, of course, as well. And when I was at the Saratoga battlefield, and I came to the famous Boot Monument which honors Benedict Arnold without mentioning his name. <laughs> I had it. I had an epiphany, right? I said, you know, yes, it's, it's gotta be Saratoga. It's gotta be the American revolution. If I have any, if any kind of hope to crack into this world of game design, and then it's got to be Saratoga because everybody knows it. It's, it's imminent. And Benedict Arnold, you know, were it not for his treason, he would be second only to George Washington in the esteem of his countrymen. Because he was masterful and did so many things prior up to and prior to his, um, his treason and was critical to the victory at Saratoga. 
um, both on the first uh, at Freeman's Farm and then later at Bemis Heights. So I said, all right, I, I had been a teacher at, at one point in my life, and I, I thought this is going to give me an opportunity to sort of inform folks who may not already know that Benedict Arnold was, uh, you know, a pretty put together guy, especially at Saratoga. Um, I'll be able to in its leadership into the game. The folks that play the game will come away just through the experience of the game with a, with a deeper appreciation for him. And, uh, and, you know, and one, one last thing, Harold, it, it was, like I said, 95, 96. And I realized that in just a few years from then, we'd be entering the 225th anniversary cycle of American independence. With that, there would be inevitably raising, right? There'd be um, movies and books and TV shows and documentaries and, and uh, magazines and, and souvenirs and especially, especially in the East, you know, along the Eastern seaboard. Um, and if I got my act together and could come up with some kind, some kind of design, and if by the grace of God, I could get that thing published, then I'd be catching that wave. Whoever took a chance on me as a publisher would be catching that wave. They'd have a product right in time for the 225th anniversary. And so those were all the, those were all sort of the underpinnings of, of how I, you know, stuck my toe in the pool. And it took me almost two years to design the prototype. Of course, you know my game, so you know that, that there's a core system that is the same. So if you learn the core system, you can move from game to game in those volumes pretty easily. Now, Newtown would be an exception for the Indian player because there's a lot of unique rules there. And uh, the Siege games have some unique rules. But the, the straight-up field battle games are easy to move from one to the other. Just a few pages of Chrome that comes with each game. The rest is the core system. Took me about two years to design it. Then, like Colonel Sanders, <laughs> I got lots of polite rejections. You know, they say Colonel Sanders was told no a thousand times. That's probably, you know, a bit of an exaggeration. But he he had to knock on a lot of doors before he before his secret herbs and spices got picked up by somebody. And uh, the same thing for me. I got a lot of, uh, you know, encouraging no's. <laughs> and, then, um, and then GMT, they, they were willing to gamble. Um, I showed it to Andy Lewis. It uh, was Avalon Con at the time. This is <laughs> pre-WBC. It was still Avalon Con. I had known Andy from just from previous tournaments and stuff. And I showed it to him and he said, you know, I, th I think... I think this is something GMT might want to take uh, take a, take a look at because it can be played in one evening and, and there's enough here for an experienced gamer and yet it's accessible to a newbie and um, and then Gene and 
and the rest of the crew over there, they were willing to, willing to take a chance. And who could have imagined, Harold, that that would have led to a series that's endured for 22 years? Amazing. Amazing. Um, and, and just to reinforce, Mark, how popular it is, you have a, a very large WBC tournament every year around the games, right? Yes. Uh, it was uh, year before last. It was our 20th anniversary. We let out all the stops. I mean, when I when it occurred to me that it was going to be the 20th year at WBC, we, uh, I mean, you know, we, we did T-shirts, we did um, koozies, we did buttons, we did, um, oh, there must have been, we had raffle drawings, you know, every day for stuff and uh, it was it was a pretty big deal, and and this year, this summer, uh, will be 22 years. Meanwhile, let's not forget what's happening over at PresCon because with PresCon, 15 years ago, gave me um, the opportunity to launch what we call RevCon, which is a all Revolutionary War mini con under the auspices of PresCon. So we have our own dedicated room, we decorate it. I mean, there's flags on the walls, there's fife and drum music playing, there's art on the walls, there's all manner of things so that when you walk in there, you, you've entered the 18th century. And this year, for example, we played Liberty or Death. Uh, you, you might know something about that, that game. Uh, we played Worthington's new Freeman's Farm. We played uh, 1775 Rebellion by Academy Games. And of course, we played my Battles of the American Revolution series, which had five heats, five separate battles in the heats, then a single elimination, quarterfinal, semifinal, and final. And as you play through all those titles through the course of the week, you're accumulating RevCon points, and whichever individual has the most RevCon points at the end of the week wins the George Washington Award, which is a magnificent uh, plaque, uh, cherry wood, beautifully um, etched. Um, and that's been going on 15 years over there. So, so between WBC and RevCon, there's been a lot of exposure, you know, not only for my series, but just for the, this notion that revolutionary war gaming is is uh, is something people should consider. It is, and I have so many questions for you, and I you know I'd like to keep this to thirty minutes, so I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. Uh, we're going to have to make an appointment for another time to to continue. But you know, uh, one of the things that 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 comes to mind when you talk about going to Saratoga and Ticonderoga, I, I will tell you that that communicates to me that you were not a small fan of the American Revolution. Uh, that's not a trip that, uh, that, that the amateur historian takes unless they're interested. So while you were considering what games to do, uh, clearly the American Revolution appealed to you at your heart at some point, right? Yeah, it did. And, and, and may I say that I take a lot of pride in, in, uh, making it a point to visit. And I, and I guess most serious designers would, would say the same, but I, I do go to every battlefield 
that that exists today. I mean, part of Utah Springs is under Lake Marion, for example. But uh, but uh, but I go I go everywhere, and I step off the ground. I check those sight lines. I you know I look at the terrain. Am I did I get this right? Is that ravine in the right place? Obviously the you know the trees come and go. They get cut down. They grow back. It's you know, but uh, but the hardscape is the hardscape right? And uh, even Savannah, uh, there's a there's a restored redoubt near the visitor center. Other than that, there's no battlefield at Savannah. But when you walk the city of Savannah in the old historic district, you will come to certain intersections and certain buildings that have plaques on them indicating where you are in the original. Uh, defensive line. Uh, so, you know, even there, I, I made sure that I stepped it off and, and uh, you know, got, got my uh, dimensions right. Well, that, that's great. And that's important because I think your passion for the, for the history shows and uh, that you're, you're such a purist and, and focused on the American Revolution. It, it just comes across uh, in the games that you do. Let me tell you a, a little story uh, that, that you may or may not know, but one of the things that I was contemplating in Liberty or Death was whether or not to include the French as a separate faction. And and I included it, and there are people that don't like my model of history, and I think that's okay. They don't have to like it. But one of the things that compelled me to do this was watching, I believe it was a semi, it was a semifinal or a final at a WBC three or four years ago where you used Savannah as a three-player, was it a three-player final? Yes, I designed Savannah as a three-player game. You're absolutely, and specifically to, specifically to expose the players to the friction that was inherent in the alliance at that battle and and in other cases as well, actually throughout the war, um, and and uh, and gosh, I I, I really want to springboard off of that point, if I may, to do a little bit about the Battle of Newport, which is the B side game in Volume Nine that's going to be out soon, as soon as we can get. That you must know. include the French. It does, and here's <laughs> here's the thing about it. This was the first attempt by our new French allies to cooperate in a land action, okay? Count d'Estaing with his fleet and his, and his troops. He had two regiments of metropolitan French troops there, um, plus 1,500 Marines and another uh, couple thousand naval infantry. These would have been, you know, second-rate forces. They're basically sailors who were given muskets and pikes and given a few days of drill. Uh, but the Marines were stout. There were 1,500 of them, and there were um, 2,000 of the, um, of the um, actual French regular infantry. And we know the plan, right? Sullivan and Destang met. We know their plan of battle. We know the deployments. We know that Lafayette and 1,200 Americans were going to cooperate with the French on the right flank of the American attack. 
Um, we know every gun emplacement in the British lines. We know where the heck, which Hessian regiments were where, where the loyalists were, where the British regulars were. And this battle came within, literally within half a day of, of happening, of occurring, okay? When suddenly <laughs> a lookout spotted sails coming over the horizon and it was a British relief force, right? So Destang reembarked his troops and sortied. He had the superior weight of, uh, he had superior throw weight of his, of ordnance and he had the weather gauge. And in his mind, it would be a, a, a quick and easy thing to sortie out, spank the British fleet, return and, and resume the action. Meanwhile, Sullivan, commanding the American forces, uh, was, was digging in. He was doing, he was building siege siege works, traditional, you know, 18th century siege approaches. And when the fleets got in line of battle and started shelling each other, a the great storm blew up. It uh it was a nor'easter, uh, but frankly, by the way it's described, I, I would tell you it was, you know, every bit a hurricane. Lasted for three days, almost. Battered both fleets, battered and scattered both fleets. And about 10 days later, uh, a frigate and a few uh, damaged French ships limped into Newport Harbor. and. Sullivan was informed that the French were heading to uh, Boston to refit. And after that, they were going to the Caribbean. When word spread that the French were not going to participate, volunteer troops serving with the Americans, and there were several thousand of them, uh, these were not state troops. These were not Continentals. These were not militia. These were deemed volunteers, and many of them were, you know, pretty good units. They started going home. The militia enlistments, as they always seem to do, <laughs> start inspiring. They started going home. It was uh, pretty soon. Sullivan realized, hey, I'm, I'm, the American portion of my army is melting away here. The French aren't coming back. I don't have enough left to maintain a siege, let alone attack the city. So he withdrew. Uh, that's what happened historically. But imagine, imagine what might have happened if the Franco-American attack had occurred and had been successful. What would have happened, Harold, if a second British army had been forced to surrender one year after Saratoga? Saratoga was the fall of 1777. This was August 1778. If a second entire British army capitulated, 
mightn't the war have ended so much sooner? I think the I think the hypothetical uh, uh, about Newport is so intriguing, and because we have all the information we need to design the scenario, where the British were, how they were dug in, where the Franco-American troops were, their numbers, their quality, their leadership. The Brits had um, around 5,000 in round numbers. Uh, the combined Franco-American army approached 14,000. So don't get me wrong, the Brits were well dug in and they had lots of ordnance, but it, it's so, to, to, to imagine what could have happened and now, to be able to game that um, and see for yourself and experiment with that. It, it's just, I, I am, I am, more, I get excited like you do, like all designers do, you know, I get excited about the next game coming off my table, but, but I mean, I'm really excited about this one because um, yeah, the historical battle is there. It's pretty straightforward. The Americans are retreating, the British are pursuing most of the time, it'll end in a stalemate, uh, as it did historically. Um, both sides claimed victory because the Brits held on to Newport, and Sullivan was able to get his army off of the Kidnick Island intact, and so they both claimed victory of sorts. But it's the hypothetical action of the French and the Americans against the British that is so intriguing. So... Anybody who thinks you shouldn't have included the French in your in your game, I think, is missing missing the mark. Oh, I, I agree, and <clears throat> and and it seems like Newport's going to have the same issue of tension that you mentioned in Savannah, and that was the thing that was so compelling to me. Was it made me think? You know, first of all, there's ne there's never just two parties at the table in any one conflict. There are usually tens, if not hundreds, of different factions and participants in any conflict. And and each we may have a common interest in beating the British, but that doesn't mean we agree on anything else. That's right. <laughs> and, and so what I saw when I saw Savannah, and I think Newport's going to present the same conundrum for three players, is the U.S. and the um, French player would disagree when to use bonuses, right? And how to sequence them. It, uh, and, and if you, if you think back to the Savannah design, you're right. I, pre I present the allied side with limited resources and almost no structured rules for how to agree to use them. And, and Mark, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's the beautiful part, is that there's not a dispute resolution mechanism. The players have to negotiate that every time they encounter it. I won't name names, but uh, it was a Savannah final at WBC, and I was the American player, and uh, my ally uh, and I were exhibiting... <laughs> You're exhibiting uh, all of the fr all of the friction and tension that the game was intended to create. Um, 
our British opponent was was going to be beaten in this case. Now, by the way, I, I like to take the British when I play at three player because Napoleon said allies are their own worst enemies and and uh, and, and, a, and a good British player can, um, you know, can can often uh, survive that. But um, in this case, the British player was going to be defeated and he was going to lose by a substantial victory, which means his army morale was going to be driven to zero. You'll you'll recall that in my series of games, you can win decisively. Typically, that involves taking objectives on the very hard to do. Usually Um, they can you can win substantially by driving the enemy's army morale to zero. And you can win marginally by simply accumulating victory points um, by the end of the game. But a substantial victory occurs the the moment it happens. As soon as you drive your opponent's army morale to zero, the game ends immediately. Well, the army morale for the British player was on perhaps four, (laughs) heading, heading to zero very quickly. And so... It was the allied half of the turn, of the, of the next turn. And it mattered in which order the French and the American player played because if I'm playing as the Americans and I'm prevailing and the British morale is falling, then victory would go to me if the French player is the one that's playing and driving the morale to zero, potentially he would win. So there, there's no, <laughs> there's no stipulated player order for the allied side. It's the allied side, right? So what order do we execute our attacks in? I asked. <laughs> said, well, I want to go first. Well, I want first, you know. So I said, all right, let's roll a die. After about 10 minutes of debate that was getting us nowhere, let's roll a die, see who goes first. And the my, my allies said, no, let's roll a die for each and every successive attack to see who gets to go. I said, fine. So I don't know. Fate was with me, right? I rolled high die. I attacked. The British went down another point. Again, we rolled again. I I got it. The British went down another point because it you know he, we had everything going our way by then. We had momentum. We had initiative. We had you know superior morale. I mean we had position. We had everything you know you could you could want. And he was just collapsing. But my friendship. But the point being, my French opponent insisted that before every combat that was going to occur. we would roll to see which of us got to execute that combat. His rules, not mine, if you will. And it broke my way and I was able to, I was able to win, but that's just a small example, right? Of, of of momentum. You're who's going to get the momentum. Well, the French are on one side of the British lines. The Americans are on the other side of the British lines. We have one momentum between us. And you're only allowed the use of one momentum per turn. Who's going to get it? Who needs it most? Um, what about the random event cards? What about what about um, diversion? 
all these mechanisms in the game um, that have to be shared. And it's all up to the players and how they can either learn to cooperate or not. And what you'll, what you'll typically find is early on in the game and through the middle game, cooperation is pretty good. Um, and then once it becomes, if, if it becomes clear that the British will lose, then you watch the daggers come out and you, and you watch players um, start to stiffen a little bit, the allied players, I mean. But look, look, Destang got there first, right? And he, and he asked Prevost to surrender to the King of France. When, Lincoln, when Benjamin Lincoln showed up with the American army and learned that, it was like, what the hell? You know, the, this is the American Revolution. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so, you know, thank you for, for noticing what, um, you know, what I about, thank you for noticing the, the friction and the tension that I built into that design. I don't know how many games are designed to be three player games by design. Um, but, um, but, but it works really well when you've got the French. <laughs> well, you know, what, what it, what it drove home to me was, that we have a very romantic notion of the, the French and the Americans agreeing, the French and the Patriots agreeing on everything. And that it never could have been that way. No. You, you know, and, and not only is, is America a young upstart, but France is arguably one of the two most powerful countries in the world at the time. So they're not going to listen. They're not going to be driven by these Patriots. Um, at the same time, they don't want to traipse around North America and become enemies of the people by themselves. So, you know, th there there's a cooperation that's required, but but the the tension is so important. And um, <clears throat> you know, the French could have won this thing, right? I mean, the French could have won this instead of the Patriots, depending on their application and their their use of force and the wins and the negotiation of the Treaty of Paris. As a, matter, as a matter of fact, Harold, you'll you'll be you'll be gratified to hear that um, at RevCon this past February, um, I won the Liberty or Death tournament, <laughs> and I and I won the preliminary round as the French at my table of four, and I won the final as the Indians. Oh, that's terrific. Oh, it was just glorious, man. <laughs> just glorious. <laughs> and it drives some traditional Patriot fans crazy, uh, which is fun to watch. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the French as a faction is just a critical part of that game and, and, uh, and, the, and modeling the history overall. Just as the, the, there has to be a, a voice in the game for everything that happens west of that declaration of 1763 line, right? That, yeah, yes. That, 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 that the frontier has a voice and the frontier was active. And, um, and that transition uh, was an important part of the war. Of course, you know, the, the, the native factions chose the French in the French-Indian War because they brought trappers and not settlers um, yes and then of course they don't have that choice 
uh, and they chose the chose the king because the chi- the king made the proclamation line of 1763 and said, you know, you're okay on the on the west side of this, and and uh, that was the best choice they had, and the British weren't a great choice, but uh, uh, I think they have to have a voice, and and the game does give them that. So, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your influence and. And, um, you know, this is a good place to stop. As I said, I have a thousand questions and we have to get together again uh, to record a long form podcast. But um, your games are such a treat and so much fun to play and so thoughtful uh, and and have had such a big influence on me. We haven't even talked about, you know, uh, my latest game, which came out at the end of last year, uh, Campaigns of 1777, which is about Burgoyne. Uh, in strategy and tactics uh, about Burgoyne coming down the Hudson and, and what if the British had made a coordinated choice as opposed mm-hmm. to an uncoordinated choice, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, no, of course, of course. And, and I, you know, and, and I respect your need to, to end the call, but you know, when, whenever I play a, a strategic rev war game, um, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Call me foolish, but I, I always try that. Yes. Oh, I try to cut the Hudson river and I try to isolate new England. Um, and it's, it's not easy, but it can be done. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it was an interesting choice, an interesting strategy. If you look at the map in 1777, my game, you can see topographically why that made sense. And the other thing that I think is really interesting as I drone on um, is the other thing that I find interesting about that conflict was when Burgoyne took um, Ticonderoga, uh, King George celebrated that they had won the war. That's how important they thought that that basin was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to me, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, that it, it, it went certainly went awry because of British hubris and independence, but um, uh, it's a, it was a critical year. Well, Mark, let me let me stop there and, and uh, tell you that I appreciate you uh, spending the time with me tonight, and um, I uh, wish you and your family uh, safety and good health through this uh, crazy time. Oh, and the same to you, Harold. Um, absolutely. And, and let's do it again. I'd love, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to just talk some more about something we both love so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Have a good evening. Take care.